Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you. Nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level, to stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages, and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. Today's episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker and supported by Orgain and Practice Better. Stay tuned to hear more about these amazing companies that I'm partnered with. But for now, let's get to the conversation. Hey fans, Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez here, your host of the podcast. Um, I apologize if my voice sounds a little weird today. I've been recovering from a bit of a cold, but fortunately you won't hear just me talking today. I'm here with another dietitian as our guest, Taylor Larson. She's a registered dietitian, certified specialist in sports dietetics, certified eating disorders, registered dietitian, and certified intuitive eating counselor, and certified ACE personal trainer. Taylor specializes in working with both athletes and non-athletes with eating disorders and disrupted relationships with food through a weight-neutral lens. She sees clients virtually through her private practice, Strong Roots Nutrition, and is also the sports dietitian for the Victory Program, the nation's first residential eating disorder treatment facility for athletes at McCollum Place in St. Louis, Missouri. She is passionate about helping clients understand the wisdom and complexities of the human body to cultivate self-care, body respect, and easier relationships with food, movement, and their bodies. Taylor, thank you for agreeing to have this conversation with me and hundreds and thousands of other people today. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I feel like I want to read your last statement of your bio one more time because it like brought me peace saying it. So I really want our client or our listeners to hear this. You are passionate about helping clients understand the wisdom and complexities of the human body to cultivate self-care, body respect, and easier relationships with food movement and their bodies. I love the way that you state that of like the fact that your body is complex, but it also has a lot of wisdom and you can listen to it. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think those are some of my favorite conversations that I have with clients is really trying to reframe a lot of the nutrition and health related information that we hear. So much of it circulating in the world is so so unhelpful and so geared toward control and restriction and finding the quote unquote right things to do and kind of micromanaging food and exercise and trying to control these aspects of health. And I think, you know, by and large, it's, it's not as necessary as we're made to believe that it is. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm of the belief that real moderation is kind of born out of listening to the body and working with it rather than, rather than coming from a place of, control. It really kind of comes from a a place of freedom. So whenever people I think can begin to learn that the body really kind of wants 
things to to work and to be in balance. Our bodies kind of crave energy balance and kind of work toward that all on their own and give us important cues and signals that can help to guide us. I think it it, it opens the door a little bit to begin to let go of some of the control type of thoughts and behaviors around food. And it's really, it's really very cool to see people come to trust their bodies more and listen to them and work with them more. Mm -hmm. Something you said about moderation just hit me because I was having this conversation with a client that, you know, in her words, she was just really struggling with moderation, but I was like, well, who's moderation, right? Like, Mm -hmm. is it an external, like, oh, this is what an appropriate serving size is, or this is what so-and-so thinks is a moderate amount, or is it, what is your body saying is moderate? What is, where's your body finding that balance? And, and those could be two totally different answers, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What's, what's moderate or feeling good for one person might feel totally off for another person. And, you know, we, our, our bodies ultimately are really good at guiding us toward what we need. And especially when that's kind of layered with some knowledge, like I often find myself, especially in the context of sport, where sometimes the outright cues can be disrupted, like hunger, right? It doesn't always line up with what would make sense. But if that can be kind of layered with some knowledge of how to best caretake your body or to kind of reflect on past experiences of I did this and then I felt this way or I did this and I felt I felt really good. And you know, that can help us to kind of fill fill in some of those gaps of where you know, body cues can be lacking. So I think the kind of marriage of, of intuition and knowledge really kind of supports self-care in some pretty nice ways. Yeah. And this is the value of the work you do and that I do as, as a dietitian, half of our job is educating. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. because as you just mentioned, half of the, st- the the knowledge, people think they have the knowledge, but it's misguided knowledge. It's diet culture knowledge. It's not tailored to athletes knowledge. And so meeting with a dietitian and a sports dietitian, like you or I, we can educate our clients on what is the right knowledge and then guide them and coach them through their body's own wisdom and intuition Mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's super fun. So we're getting right into it, but let's backtrack a little (laughs) bit, Taylor. (laughs) Tell us, you know, your journey to become a dietitian. What I always like to know, because we do have very similar, like super similar lines of work is, you know, at what point did you come to realize you wanted to work with athletes at what point you came to realize you wanted to work with eating disorders or were they at the same point in time or, you know, how, how did your passion to work in this field begin? Yeah, no, that's really a really good question. My, my interest in dietetics as a whole really came from a really, really good biology teacher in college. I went through the majority of my schooling thinking that I absolutely hated science, didn't understand it. Turns out in hindsight, I think it was just like subpar teachers throughout high school that like kind of had me believing that science was not fun and I was no good at it. And this biology teacher in college really kind of changed that for me and, and taught some segments on nutrition and, and it was, it was interesting. And I was like, wow, food is kind of, you know, cool. I didn't really like realize all these aspects of food that were out there. And so, so that was kind of an interesting turn of events. I thought I wanted to do journalism and writing, and then it went totally different direction into food and nutrition. But I, I feel like fairly soon after I decided to study nutrition, the idea of working in the realm of sports nutrition felt pretty exciting to me. 
like I said, my interest in nutrition overall really kind of came from a place of realizing that food was this cool thing that could that we could use for our benefit in in different ways. And maybe it had some health and well-being kind of benefits, or maybe it could benefit sports performance. And I think with just being in various sports and activities throughout my life, I had some of my own experiences with feeling how food kind of had the power to influence how I felt while trying to be active. I think at the time, I like didn't always connect the dots that it was like my food was off or hydration was off at a certain time. But then in hindsight, the more I learned, the more I was like, oh, I think, you know, maybe things could have, you know, maybe my experiences could have been different or things could have been better if I knew a little bit more or had a little bit more like thoughtful instruction about how to kind of best fuel for sport. So, so, so yeah, as I learned more, it was sort of this things sort of clicked and like, wow, food is, food is cool. Food is important and it can serve a lot of different roles. And uh, when I was in my dietetic internship, I got the opportunity to do part of that internship with Mizzou Athletics. I went to Mizzou for for my undergrad. And it was it was a really fun atmosphere. It was really high energy. It was and it was a very fun experience. I wasn't really sure if that was the environment that I wanted to work in or not. And then through so I, I really landed in eating disorders first. And that okay. sort of came about I kind of say that I fell into it a little bit out of mostly out of my own curiosity and feeling a knowledge deficit. I had a couple, I knew a couple of people in college who kind of struggled with their own eating and their own relationship with food. And because I was studying nutrition at the time, I had people come to me to say like, what do you do with this? And I was like, I have no idea what you do with this. Like I got 20, 20 minutes maybe of education about eating disorders covered in one class one time. And, and that just didn't sit right with me. Like I'm somebody who likes to learn. I like to, you know, I like to kind of know, you know, at least generally things, especially within my field. You know, I didn't, I didn't like the fact that there was like this whole realm of nutrition that felt pretty unknown to me. And I think at the time in school, I was sort of told, and you probably were told too, like, oh, eating disorders are really rare. It's probably not something you're going to encounter a whole lot. And now I'm like, okay, who came up with that? Because, <laughs> yeah, there was, yeah, it's, no, uh, disagree. You know, yeah. Yes. So, so that's a whole other topic, but anyways, it was really kind of out of curiosity and, and being uncomfortable with this, this real true knowledge deficit that I had. And so I knew of McCallum Place because Mizzou had a specialty rotation through McCallum Place. I didn't do it, but I kind of knew that it was that it existed, that it was out there. And I applied with no experience at all, but a willingness to learn. And here we are almost nine years later. And yeah. I really, really, really love it. And so I, I worked with the Victory Program in some capacity or another throughout really all of that time that I've worked at, at McCallum Place. And it's been in the last four years or so that I've been kind of the main victory sports dietitian. But really the vast majority of my work with athletes and how I came to like become a sports dietitian has been in the context of eating disorder recovery. So, you know, most most of the athletes that I've worked with have been like actively pursuing recovery and that's how our paths have crossed. So, so yeah, it's been kind of a a, a little bit of a windy windy and probably semi-unique path to get here. But but yeah, it's 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 wonderful and I I love it. I love the work. So it's interesting because I, I had the same experience in college. My mom is the one who like kind of like laughs at me in my career right now because she's like, when you were in college, like you literally said to me, I will never work in the space of eating disorders. <laughs> <laughs> and most of that did come from a lack, you know, a 
yeah, a, a lack of knowledge about it and maybe a fear of it. Cause if you don't know about something, then you kind of like, you don't, you don't trust in yourself to be good at it. Right. I think there's probably more to that story of my own. And even still, like what I knew I wanted to work in wasn't sport. And then here's the reality is there's a lot of whether it's clinically diagnosed eating disorders, but just disordered eating in sport. And so that was my experiences and my personal experiences was like of down the path of disordered eating. And there's a lot of overlap, right? Between that. And so I think as we continue this conversation, we talk about, you know, McCallum place in your work there and stuff like there's, there's eating disorders and there's also disordered eating and both deserve help. And mm-hmm. so let's kind of, dig into where where you work at McCallum Place. Can you just first kind of start with telling people what it is? It's an eating disorder treatment center. I think you have two locations, right? Mm -hmm. Can you just kind of give a brief overview to our listeners of what it is? Yeah. Yeah. So McCallum Place has two locations, one in St. Louis and one in Kansas City. And it's a it's an eating disorder treatment program. And there are various levels of care within that program. And Overall, I don't know how much how much you or, or listeners know about the levels of care that are offered in an eating disorder treatment. Yeah, I'd love to go into that. Yeah. yeah. So 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 we offer residential care, which is twenty four hour care, but for mainly when there's medical stability going on. If people are in a, a really medically compromised place, then generally they would go to an inpatient facility first to get more medically stabilized. An inpatient is essentially hospitalization, but there are eating disorder-specific inpatient facilities out there that are attuned to and equipped to treat eating disorders. And then generally after after that, if that is needed, people step down to residential care, which is the highest level of care that we have. So it's 24 hours a day, And it can be really useful whenever people are struggling with behaviors that they're having a hard time stopping on their own, or there is some amount of medical monitoring that is needed, or there's just kind of a, it's time for a high degree of supervision and monitoring and support and residential is great for that. Then there is partial hospitalization, which is a day program. So people are there for six to 10 hours a day, again, for a lot of kind of structured eating and just monitoring of, again, kind of maybe lesser medical concerns going on. And and then after that, there is intensive outpatient, which is about three hours a day and includes some supervised kind of structured meals and therapeutic groups. And and that's kind of McCallum Place. So whenever people admit for treatment, they are assigned to a treatment team which consists of a therapist, a dietitian, and a psychiatrist. And then we have a medical doctor who works with all patients sort of as needed as any medical concerns arise. And then something that's kind of unique to McCallum Place that isn't necessarily offered in every eating disorder facility is a, we have a a wonderful fitness team too. So we have a strength and conditioning coach, we have an exercise physiologist, and then we contract with a wonderful physical therapist who is eating disorder informed and sensitive. And they're all wonderful, supportive fitness professionals to just kind of help guide exploration of and reintegration of movement in whatever capacity makes sense as it's appropriate to do that. Right. Because what if we're dealing with athletes, there's going to be a huge movement and physical body component. But even with non-athletes, there's, you know, a lot of, you know, moving our body can, can be good, can be rejuvenating, can be healing for us, um, but needs to be 
monitored and done safely when we're discussing recovery from eating disorders. Two other questions about the McCallum place to kind of follow up on is for our listeners to know, because this, this might seem very like overwhelming or scary to some of them, but if you are doing the PHP or IOP and you're not from Missouri, mm-hmm. you're not from the mm-hmm. area, you guys offer like housing nearby, right? We do. Yeah. We have, uh, we have a, a house or what is soon kind of becoming a couple of houses that people are able to stay in if they are not local. So that is a really nice and low cost resource for people if they come from out of town, which a lot of people do uh, come from out of town to get help. Not every state has, you know, intensive help for eating disorders, or sometimes people, oftentimes, really, people will choose to come to McCallum Place and the Victory Program specifically because of the Victory Program and a desire to kind of do this recovery work alongside other athletes and with people who kind of offer the sport, you know, some recovery through a sport lens. So, so yeah, there's some housing available that people can utilize in those lower levels of care if they're not local. Probably should have done a little bit more research on this, but I'll just ask you, is is the Victory Program the only eating disorder treatment center that specifically like works with athletes or was it just the first? It's it's not the only program that okay. works with athletes, but to my knowledge, it is the only program that works with athletes that offers the residential level of care. So okay, that's so, the differentiation. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah. So one one benefit of the Victory Program is you would kind of you could do all levels of care through the Victory Program, starting with residential, whereas the other programs in the area that I that I know of, hopefully, you know, I'm not getting this wrong, but as far as I know, it's the others maybe offer PHP or IOP, but not the residential level. Yeah. No. Thanks for clarifying that because yeah, there are other places that I know athletes have gone to and speak highly of blah blah blah. But I'm like, but the Victory Program is it's kind of like this. It's more known for working with athletes and it must be because of that residential piece in all levels of care. So seeing somebody all the way through, which is another question I have. And I don't know if you have the answer to this, but like mm-hmm. everybody's journey with recovery is different. I don't know if you want to give an average or like a range, but like in these three different levels of care, residential, PHP, IOP, like how long would somebody kind of expect to be in treatment for? Mm, yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good question. And ultimately, it is so individual based on a lot of different factors, some of which, you know, maybe have to do with medical stability coming in, or how much work somebody kind of needs to do in order to get renourished and medically, medically stabilized, the severity of just behaviors and symptoms going on. Insurance, unfortunately, is a factor in there too. Sometimes insurance does, you know, a wonderful job of kind of paying for whatever amount of time is really needed and other times not. But I think our our averages for each of those levels of care, especially residential and PHP, is like four to six weeks each. But yeah, sometimes it's longer and sometimes it's shorter. Yeah, absolutely. But thank you for sharing that because I think when it comes down to the decision of, am I going to go to a treatment center? People are going to weigh that, like, how much time is this going to take? And of course, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. If you find recovery, it doesn't matter how much time it took, but you know, it could be stepping away from, for an athlete, stepping away from your sport or your team or for, you know, somebody working could be stepping away from your work or, you know, if we're in, you know, 10 hours a day stepping away from your family. And so these are things that they're big decisions. The The choice to recover from an eating disorder is a big decision and might be one of the most important ones you can make in your whole life. But, and, and it's amazing to think, wait, I could maybe be 
in a totally different place, like three months from now, or, you know, Mm -hmm. like six weeks from now. So, but of course there's a lot of planning that can be involved in that. So thank you for kind of sharing that maybe four to six weeks, you know, per stage, pending which stage you enter into (laughs) and all that, I think is might help people wrap their minds around what it might take. And I think you you make a really good point that, you know, being you, you have this chance to maybe be in a very different place within a relatively short amount of time, which which I being on on both the working both in like the residential and PHP side of things and having an outpatient practice. Sometimes, you know, I'll work for, with people for years on an outpatient basis, making kind of slow progress. And I see that same progress be made in six weeks in higher levels of care. And so, so it's a, it's a really hard decision to make. Understandably, there's a lot of factors that go into it. I don't want to oversimplify it, but it can really be worthwhile to get a real, a real running start in recovery and really kind of hit the ground running and learn a lot of things and and really kind of be in this place of of practicing a lot of things with a lot of support and that part of it is so beneficial. Yeah. Absolutely. I know in in my practice and my listeners will know I call my program the fast track because it's 12 weeks of working together and if we take that approach of really investing ourselves in these 12 weeks, you know, you're going to get out of the program what you put into it. And so if you show up ready to invest in these 12 weeks, you'll be in a totally different place, Mm -hmm. you know, in three months. And it's just amazing what the girls and the clients I work with can accomplish when we dedicate ourselves. And I think that's also really helpful to athletes who are used to having a goal, you know, it's like, oh, the season might be three or four months long. Like, yep this is what I'm doing X, Y, and Z training plan to get to the big competition or the championship. So that's like, that's kind of like in my practice, I'm like, we're working towards the championship here. Are we going to win at the end of this or not? Right. (laughs) So, so share with us a little bit more about the victory program. As we're saying, this is a treatment facility within the McCallum place that is specific to athletes. And that's where you are the dietitian. There's many dietitians at McCollum Place, but you mm-hmm. are the dietitian that works with the Victory Program with the athletes there. What makes the treatment of the Victory Program different, if at all, mm-hmm. than the rest of the treatment offerings? Yeah, yeah. So structurally, things look pretty similar for anybody that's going through eating disorder treatment at McCallum Place. There are meals and snacks kind of spaced throughout the day and there's therapeutic groups in between and and what the victory program kind of does is create a specialized program track for athletes that offers specialized groups that address of course general recovery things that are needed and helpful for anybody who's who's suffering from an eating disorder but but often kind of trying to look at it from maybe a sport lens or to address you know have opportunity to address sport specific concerns or topics for example i run our we have a sports nutrition group that i run every week so in addition to maybe attending a more general nutrition group there's a, a more specialized sports nutrition group where we can talk about aspects of you know fueling before during and after activity and hydration or uh, addressing some of the challenges of rest days or things like that and then there's other groups of course too like like a self-compassion group where you know maybe there's kind of 
some some aspects of sport that could be kind of brought into that or thinking about discharge planning and what elements of 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 sport are kind of helpful to keep in mind as we're planning for discharge so so it just kind of creates a specialized group track and then within that too there's just the the kind of ongoing access to the fitness professionals as needed as it makes sense as uh, exercise is reintegrated and progressed as well and we do just to clarify we do also offer support around movement and fitness for any patient that comes through the program but but it's generally something that we we kind of start more thoughtfully with our athletes maybe having non-active sessions pretty early on in treatment to just kind of talk about relationship with sport process through kind of concerns that have come up and just relationship with exercise dynamics so that we kind of have all of that top of mind as we kind of lead somebody through the treatment process and back to their sport or not you know because sometimes people decide not to return to their sport but but at least to kind of have all the appropriate hands in the in the pot to be able to help with all these different aspects that are so critical to treatment and recovery. Hey fans, I hope you are enjoying this conversation, but an important part of it is a word from our awesome sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker. Thanks to Inside Tracker, I've been able to catch iron deficiency and anemia on two different occasions in the past few years. And with this, I was able to kickstart my recovery to better fueling and workouts without having to coordinate doctor's appointments or wait around for my lab results. With Inside Tracker, I'm able to get my blood drawn whenever I want to and see everything that I want to. Personally, I get the ultimate plan a couple times a year to check up on my blood biomarkers and nutritional status. And thanks to Inside Tracker, I'm able to implement science-based nutrition and lifestyle recommendations immediately after results come in with their user-friendly online platform and personalized action plan. This is why I've been able to reverse iron deficiency so quickly, because my health is in my own hands when I'm using Inside Tracker. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store by heading to insidetracker.com forward slash rise up. There's a lot more that it can show you and that you can do with it besides just your iron. That's just my personal experiences. So again, head to insidetracker.com forward slash rise up. That's R-I-S-E-U-P for 20% off. Back to the show. Yeah, so let's talk about this topic of needing to step away from sport because we've mentioned, as you said, like kind of the return to sport, but, and this is like, since I work outpatient, I guess we'll just say like, I feel like there's a lot more that goes into determining whether or not it's appropriate for somebody to step away from their sport. You know, it's like, there's certain things where when you're in a treatment center, there's standards that might need to be met versus outpatient is different. So like in my practice, it's, an honest conversation with a client and where they're at with their health and, and me giving my absolute best professional recommendations and, and sometimes letting them know like, Hey, you're not going to see progress unless we do this. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I hopefully I'm not jumping all over the place, but recently started working with a client that wasn't ready to give up running. And I took her on as a client anyways, because I, she was agreeing to do less intensity. And I, and I felt that we could work together with that. And 
two weeks into the program, through the conversations we were having, we were able to together come to the decision of not running anymore. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is at least for now. And this has happened before where it's like, good, we can start this process and then figure out what the right path is. But anyways, that's just a little story. I think figuring out when sport is is safe or appropriate to continue participation and at what level versus when we just need to shut it down, you know, obviously with at McCollum place and, and the victory program with those three different levels, I would imagine with residential sport is shut down. Right. <laughs> for the most, for the most part, yes. It, it really kind of depends on medical status and what's, what's going on. There are certainly times where people are in residential and, and begin to reintegrate some, okay. some kind of structured supervised activity. And we could kind of talk about what that, what that looks like a little bit. But, but yeah, the, there are absolutely times where it just makes sense to, to stop and step away. And then whenever it is time, it, you know, and somebody is kind of feeling ready to reintegrate it, I think it takes both sides of that take a really thoughtful approach. It, it generally doesn't go well if people just kind of launch themselves back into training. Again, it takes kind of smart, smart and safe progression of things in order for that to really work well and for it to not compromise recovery, which would be, you know, arguably the worst thing for sports performance in the long run. Right. Right. Because that's the thing as an athlete, if, if you were so scared to stop training because we're scared of losing, you know, our fitness, our progress, but if you don't recover, then you're going to lose your progress. Mm -hmm. You're going to lose your sport if you don't recover. So recovery, it does have to come first. Yeah. Um, And maybe it can happen at the same time. Maybe there, there's absolutely, this is like what I do is, is working on finding that middle ground and recovering and being an athlete at the same time. But it's, it, recovery does have to come first mm-hmm. because otherwise mm-hmm. the sport, like you can't be a good athlete if you're not a healthy human. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And at, at the end of the day, you know, sport is, it, it can be so fun. It adds so much to life and, and there are so many other important aspects of life too. And so it's really important to prioritize recovery and to try to keep the lens zoomed out as much as possible of like what's going on in the bigger picture here. What is, what's going well, what's not going well, what's, you know, are there aspects of my life or relationship with food or movement that are really kind of compromising overall, you know, health and well-being and recovery in a way that is more detrimental to overall life and well-being and yeah, I feel like we talk about that a lot, like zooming out and zooming out and looking at like the bigger picture of what's happening. Yeah, because I think if we're we're having the conversation about to, to stop sport participation or not to stop, there's we can have the, the physical, you know, are your lab values out of whack? Mm-hmm. You know, an eating disorder is not diagnosed solely on weight, but we do have that concern of are we at a, a dangerously low body weight? Then that would be a time to, you know, stop sport if our bones are not strong enough low bone mineral density, that would be a time to consider stopping sport to heal those. Can you think of any other reasons that we would need to stop sport? Yeah. Yeah. Other, just other medical complications like dangerously low heart rate or disrupted blood pressure or, you know, concerning postural tachycardia where heart rate really jumps going from sitting to standing, which demonstrates just a compromised heart, a weak heart. Or if there's, you know, electrolyte disruptions going on, and then there's also just like the psychological factors of like, is, is there such a dependence on exercise that it is, you know, are, are people exercising even when they're sick or injured or is there, is there just a, an inability to take 
rest days or does anxiety and depression really spike up whenever you know we're kind of taking a, a step back from exercise those would all just be more more the psychological signs that like this is not a this is not a good thing we have going for us here um yeah and then no yeah thank you that's the second side right the first side is f- the physical markers and the second side is the psychological of if if you are struggling to step away from sport because you feel like that's the only identity I have, or that's the only way I know how to cope, then that's actually showing you a a lack of coping skills and a lack of self-identity. And so stepping away from sport can help you rediscover or rediscover more and maybe more appropriate coping skills and rediscover who you truly are, even without or just outside of sport. And those are really important things that sometimes only stepping away from sport, can you discover that? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we talk about that idea of identity expansion a lot. You know, it's just, just like with anything, if you've got all of, if you've got all your eggs riding in one basket, that's, it's not a good place to be. You know, if there's so much identity wrapped around athletics and then something happens that compromises that there are lots of things that can happen that can compromise that injury or just retirement from sport when that's appropriate, you know, or kind of forced retirement if you graduate or something like that, then that really can kind of compromise a lot of things. And, really throw people for a loop. So being able to have a healthy and well-rounded identity that includes sport, if if that applies, mm-hmm. but but also with other things too, that's, it's much more helpful to have other, other things that can kind of hold you up in life if one thing gets compromised in some way. I love that phrase, identity expansion. I'm going to start using that a little bit more. <laughs> Um, because it's an expansion upon it. It's not that you, you aren't you in sport. You're still you and, and you can be an athlete and that's amazing. We love athletes. It's a part of my identity. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's okay. But, but expanding that, you know, is just a really exciting way to think about this. Yeah, absolutely. And then just a couple other things that really kind of come to mind just around when it makes sense to stop exercise would, you know, from from a nutrition lens, if someone is unable to eat enough to fuel activity, or if there's other just dangerous behaviors going on, like purging or abusive laxatives or diuretics or things like that that can compromise hydration, those would also be some some pretty concerning things to really highly consider in stopping exercise, at least for a time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and this is also really important for people to hear who maybe don't resonate with an eating disorder, but do resonate with energy deficiency and, and red S, right? Which might have some overlap, but might be completely independent. But even for people with red S, you could consider stepping away from sport because the whole point here is you need more energy intake. And if you're not reaching that when you reduce or lower sport, it makes it easier for you to reach your energy intake. And maybe the the goal for athletes is to return to sport, but you can at least kind of overcome the energy deficiency first and then figure out, okay, how do I keep fueling my body as I return to sport? So I think that's really great advice for those who resonate with eating disorders, but also for those who resonate with red S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I think we had a, that was a very helpful discussion about when to stop sport. So, and so the reintroduction to sport is, of course, as these markers start improving, right? As, oh, we are fueling enough nutritionally, our fueling is matching, you know, what we need. 
we, our heart rate has improved. Our body weight's in a good place. We're not doing self-harm activities, engaging in, in hurtful activities. And maybe we're starting to find joy in our lives without sport. Then it's like, oh, now we get to add some sport back in and just find even more mm-hmm. joy in life <laughs> with it. Right. Or those, do you have any other like markers or like when reintroduction to sport is appropriate? Yeah, I would say most of the markers of when to when to stop or reduce exercise is is really overlapping with when to reintegrate it again. So like you said, looking for the the pieces around medical stability, behavioral nutritional kind of stability, willingness to eat more in order to fuel for the additional expenditure that's going to happen. And the the same kind of psychological markers. One thing one thing that we kind of talk about is you know if is there ability to take the choice of rest if it were available. So like one thing that is offered at McCallum Place is uh, as long as the weather is conducive to it, we try to get everybody outside to take kind of a a, a self care kind of walk in the mornings just to like get fresh air and get outdoors and with all the benefits there and. So one thing that we might kind of challenge people to do or suggest that they do is to skip the walk. Like, is it possible to to skip that, you know, a day or two or something like that? Or is there so much kind of need wrapped into like, I need to get every little bit of movement in that I can. So that can be just one, you know, one one marker that I think is kind of unique maybe to the treatment environment, but, but just that looking for less dependency ultimately on it. And then from... From there, you know, generally, at least the the athletes that come through our program are meeting with some some person of our our fitness staff or strength conditioning coach or exercise physiologist for non-active sessions to kind of explore relationship to movement and any challenges that have happened kind of along that uh, along the way with it, and then and then we kind of start start kind of slow, you know, like I said, we w- we wouldn't kind of launch back into uh, a real intensive training plan, but we might start with some you know kind of strength building again a couple of days a week or kind of start with uh, some some biking or elliptical or, you know, different things like that, that maybe are not not super intense. And we kind of grade, grade the intensity and progress things slowly as we go and integrate additional days and additional time. And then all along the way, there's there's a lot of support around those sessions. So that's, I think, why this our fitness staff are so vital and helpful is there's a lot of processing around those sessions too. So there might be some kind of goal setting or intention setting before to, you know, check in with ourselves or listen to our bodies or, you know, stop early if if the body is kind of giving cues that that would be best. And then afterwards, similar processing of like, you know, how present, how present we're eating disorder thoughts in this workout. And, you know, what what came up for you? Was there kind of urges to keep going? Or was it okay to, to stop or just just various things like that. And I think that's where you know, working with fitness staff, they're really kind of attuned and sensitive to eating disorders and all that come along with that is so vital whenever athletes or non-athletes who are, you know, active or plan to be active in any way, having, having some fitness professionals like that can be so helpful. But yeah, that's kind of what, yeah. what that tends to look like overall. Then we might even progress it to like doing more independent workouts or like, you know, runners go run outside on your own and like then let's debrief afterwards and, you know, kind of advancing, advancing things along like that in different ways that make sense just on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think start starting with strength training is a great place because whatever your sport is, just getting back out there 
whether it's been two weeks off or two months off, honestly, that one of the biggest concerns with return to sport is like injury because we're, you know, suddenly and, and most athletes are going to be so excited to return to sport. We're mm-hmm. going to go hard. And so starting with that strength <laughs> training to uh, activate the muscles and not heavy strength training, not yet, but just activate the muscles, the ligaments, the joints, get them used to load bearing again. So starting with the strength training a couple of times a week is, is definitely the way to go. And then it would be the low impact, low intensity cardiovascular to get the, you know, your breath used to that again and your heart rate comfortable and then continuing to progress Mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. And it can be challenging. I mean, you know, as I think we can imagine to get back into activity and, you know, I'm, I'm sure various people have experienced that to different degrees of maybe just having to take breaks for an injury or you know, maybe some other health complication. And and I think it's something else that is so hard and useful is to appropriately set expectations going going in and maybe have the expectation that it's it's going to feel different than it did before. And it's it's normal and natural and human to experience reductions in endurance capacity and muscle strength. And, and can we have a lot of just empathy and self-compassion around all of that and know that bodies are also amazingly resilient and that that strength, strength and endurance comes back. It doesn't, this isn't yeah. a forever thing. And, and can we, can we go in with our expectations just appropriately set and know that this is not forever and you've done something really, really important for your total health and well-being by taking this break? Yes. So this is a great conversation because I don't want people to feel bad if their participation in sport is not at the, at the level maybe it was before recovery, just because it's a lot that your body went through. But that still, that doesn't make recovery the wrong thing. Like you're going to get there. Your body just might need more time to adjust. I was, I was talking to a client about this just this week, actually, because she did a wonderful job of stepping away from sport over the summer and there was injury involved as well. And she is just in such a good place with her relationship with food, with her physical health. She was somebody who resonated with secondary amenorrhea and, you know, didn't have a menstrual cycle for a couple of years. And she's had three consecutive periods in a row now. So it's like, she's in such amazing things. Yeah. Such amazing things for her health. Her, her performance is not yet, you know, where she wants it to be. And so we're dealing with that expectation management, but I'm like, it's a matter of time, you know? And so it's just continuing that encouragement at the same time, as you said, the body is so resilient. So you might really shock yourself because I've also had clients that take months off and then head into their next season and just go win everything because their body's in a better place. Their health is in a better place. Their, their training, their body can actually adapt to their training for it to be beneficial. I mean, I'm talking about like state champions and stuff that I'm like, even I'm like, whoa, like I, (laughs) I set the expectation lower because that is, you know, a possibility Mm -hmm. in reality, but the body is so resilient and there's so much muscle memory and so much like if your body is healthy, you're going to be a better athlete. So if you prioritize that recovery, your athletics will improve. It it is just a matter of time and everybody has their own journey with that timeline. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, um, ah, Taylor, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. We're running out of time. (laughs) Let's see if we can have, before we wrap up this conversation, a little chat about just like the crossover of like why athletes are at risk of, of having eating disorders. Because I think from 
just the environment of athletics, maybe some personality traits that make athletes thrive in sport also is kind of what helps an eating disorder thrive. Yeah. So what are in, in your experiences, like some of the reasons that athletes are kind of our risk of developing eating disorders? Yeah. Yeah. There's a good, there's a good handful and I'm sure I'll miss some, but, um, but yeah, the personality traits, like you said, you know, a lot of things that really drive people to be good athletes can also easily kind of cross over into also things that, um, allow eating disorders to kind of develop and, and, and thrive. And that's, I think, uh, an important thing to kind of dig, dig into and help people kind of separate, like, what are the traits that make us a good athlete? What are the things that kind of fall more into eating disorders and how can we kind of stay in the, um, using those traits in like a wholesome way rather than letting them kind of drive, drive um, more over control kind of behaviors that is really helpful. Yeah. Like being disciplined is something that comes to Mm -hmm. mind, you know, and it's like, okay, so maybe being disciplined with your sport has helped you become a great athlete. But if we're overly disciplined with our nutrition, which we have to define what being disciplined with your nutrition means, like that's what fuels an eating disorder. And so how can Mm -hmm. you use that, that trait of being disciplined as something that that helps you, but doesn't hurt you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Others being, you know, some sports kind of have built in just dieting pressure or weight cycling that tends to happen. Injury, injury or other, other kinds of trauma, of course, could be things that, that kind of set athletes up for then maybe having a lot of worry or concern about food or what's going to happen to my weight or what should I be eating here while I'm injured, which can then I've seen that kind of, I've seen a lot of athletes kind of show up in, in our program on the tails of an injury that really kind of catapulted them into a lot of regimented eating. Yeah, I've definitely heard that a lot too. When I ask clients, like when this all started and it, it's definitely common of like, well, I got injured. And so I wanted to make sure I was taking care of my body and it kind of can start innocently or it was that I didn't want to gain weight. Maybe coach told me to watch it. And it's like, oh man. And so then next thing you know, it's like, you're not even appropriately healing from this injury, or you went from one injury, maybe a more physical, you know, broken ankle to now this internal injury and this psychological injury. So I think that's one for us as athletes to really be mindful of that when you, when you have an injury of like, how do you truly take care of yourself and not, mm-hmm. not turn one problem into two problems? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Others could be coaching style of the the coach. You know, some coaches have, really have a, a very supportive style. Other coaches really, really tend to emphasize weight and performance and outcomes. And, and you know, of course, the different styles there can really kind of foster eating disorder development or can really be helpful in preventing eating disorders. And then just other elements of the specific sport culture, you know, like what kind of uniforms are you kind of expected to wear? Are there weigh-ins as a part of your sport culture? How does your sport talk about bodies and food and all of those elements can be really hard. And that's where, you know, with, I think eating disorders, I, I imagine you would agree, I think are really under under identified and underdiagnosed in in athletes because there's just so so many disorder behaviors that are so normalized in in the sport culture and then just being in a state of low energy availability can also all on its own sometimes create a lot of disordered patterns or when when people kind of get into enough of a suppressed nourishment state then the brain just doesn't function as well and yeah. that can really be a time that those eating disorder thoughts and symptoms really take over yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it might not 
have maybe at its roots been an eating disorder, but it was maybe the, the more I've got quotes around this, but like accidental red S under fueling that can happen to athletes, but then your brain isn't nourished. Then you don't think clearly, then, then you get depressed and then like, and then you just get stuck and in this rut. And next thing you know, it, it actually is an eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. That's something to be careful of for sure. You mentioned something else about like, oh, the sports and like, you know, weights and stuff like that. And I just have to say this. I, I work in this field and I've worked, I've worked at major universities and, and I'm still shocked. I'm still shocked at the stories from my clients that say that their teams, their coaches or strength and conditioning coaches are doing weigh-ins or, you know, have a clipboard where they're supposed to sign in and write how much they squatted and write their body weight next to it for the entire team to see that literally had that conversation this week on Tuesday with a client. And I just like pulled my hair out. I was like, this is still happening. Yeah. Because at least at the universities I worked at, like we, we stopped those behaviors, you know, we talked to the strength and conditioning coaches had, you know, but like, I think there's some universities where they don't have a dietitian and I, I don't know about the pro teams and stuff, but like, certainly if there's not a nutrition staff, that's like kind of setting these policies. I'm like, this is still happening. Yeah, no, it's wild. It really feels like we should be years, years I, past <laughs> this, but we're not. <laughs> yes. <that's laughs> like, some places are doing a wonderful job. Some places like they don't do any of it. They don't measure body comp. They don't do anything. And then others I'm like, are, why are we living like 20 years in the past right now? I don't understand. Yeah. When I do, I do just want to brag for a second, the conversation I had with my client on Tuesday, she was the first person who was signing in. And so she did not put her body weight down. Oh, I and love she was it. like, I'm not doing this and I'm not going to set the precedent. She doesn't know what everybody else after her did, but I, she put big X in it. And I said, good for you. Yeah. So. <laughs> she might have she given important permission to somebody else to not share that I, information. I hope, I hope she did. I really hope she did. So, well, uh, Taylor, this was so, so great to chat with another like-minded dietitian that's doing really, really important work. And I think something I wanted our listeners to get out of this conversation that I hope that they did is just like, about treatment centers, because my listeners do know that I, I, I work with athletes and work with athletes who resonate with disordered eating. And like, you know, there's, that, that's great. Uh, you know, I love doing that. And I'm going to keep doing that. But there's also a time and a place where going to a treatment center is appropriate. And, and sometimes it, it might be because those those more medical needs need to be monitored and assessed. Maybe it's because we we need that help returning back to sport more slowly. We need more psychological help or even we just need to kind of step away from, from life. I think that's also a treatment center allows you to focus on just that, mm-hmm. on just treatment. And, and maybe, although you have to still learn how to be recovered and, and keep focusing on recovery, when you reintegrate back into life, sometimes stepping away, going to a center where you can give it a hundred percent of your focus is what can create kind of those lifelong results. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there can be a lot of it's it, it there's a lot of benefits to taking that step back and to really focus a lot of effort and energy on recovery because life is life is hard enough on its own and yeah. then if you try to throw something really complicated like keeping disorder recovery into the mix, it can be genuinely just really hard to do. It's hard to step into challenging yourself to reintegrate foods that feel scary or off limits or that have been kind of cut out due to whatever beliefs there are about those things. And it can be hard to restructure eating patterns in a way that's more supportive of all around health and well-being. And 
sometimes it's really, really helpful to go to a place where that is kind of at the the cornerstone of everything and to be able to have lots and lots of support and direct help with doing things that that maybe you really want to do, but are just kind of really struggling to do it on your own, which is, like I said, so understandable because it is so hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the work that you do with your private practice, Strong Roots Nutrition, the work that I do with Rise of Nutrition, it's it's powerful and so important, but there's a lot of like personal accountability, right? I provide a lot of support to my clients. I can check in with them every day, but like I'm not eating lunch with them. Like you can, you can, you can show up to my virtual session eating lunch that, that happened today. You, know, uh-huh. you can do that, but, um, but it, it's different. Right. And so I think it's really important to highlight these treatment centers and, and to lift them up for when that's appropriate as well. But no matter what, I hope that this conversation was helpful to somebody somewhere out there to getting the help that they need and deserve. Taylor, I finish every episode with the same questions for each guest. Are you ready to play along? Sure. Okay. If there was one food you could eat every single day for the rest of your life and never get sick of it, what would it be? Mm, Macaroni and cheese. Oh, so good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Had that for lunch today, actually. (laughs) Are you at, I think this episode is going to air around Thanksgiving time. Is for you, is mac and cheese like a Thanksgiving dish or unrelated? It's, it's not, it's unrelated, but it's, it's a, any, any day dish. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I, I never associated mac and cheese to Thanksgiving, but when I first moved to the South, then I was like, Oh, that like people serve mac and cheese on Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. too. And, but yes, it isn't any day, like all food, (laughs) all food isn't any day type of food, but I know with Thanksgiving coming up, that's some people's like favorite side dish. (laughs) Okay. What is your favorite sport to participate in? Ooh, I would have to say running has been the the sport that I've done most in my adult life. And I have a very active husky who is always happy to run alongside me. So yeah, I'd have to say running. Great. How about what is your favorite sport to watch as a spectator? Mm. Actually, for a long time, it's been uh, water polo has been a favorite of mine to watch. I had a, a friend of a few friends really in high school who played water polo and I thought that it was just so interesting it wasn't really something that I came across until I like met people that played it and it's it's very exciting it's like you know swimming and amazing like treading water abilities and so hard wrestling and like soccer all kind of rolled into one it's 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 interesting to me so but but when the Olymp- when the olympics roll around i feel like i'm i'm all about the swimming and gymnastics really that's awesome yeah yeah i love the water, water polo answer i don't think i've heard that one yet so that's great <laughs> and then is there a female athlete out there that you think is really inspiring or motivational whether it's somebody well known famous or just in your personal life that you want to give a shout out to mm okay well i will have to i'll have to plug Lauren Fleshman, mostly for her letter to a younger me that I think is just beautiful. She kind of addresses some of the challenges that female runners have throughout their life and throughout just puberty and development and 
menstruation and kind of how the all the ups and downs with performance that can come with all of that and and just write the most beautiful letter to her younger self that I find myself referencing often or kind of reading with clients in sessions at times or you know kind of cutting snippets of it to give to people to kind of read and reflect on so so that's that one sticks out the most to me just because that that letter I feel like it's just like always pulled up on my computer because it's just so wonderful and inspiring. Great. And it's also probably a good activity. Like you can read that, be inspired by her, and then maybe even challenge yourself to write a letter to your younger self. Mm -hmm. It can be a helpful activity to do too. Absolutely. Well, Taylor, thank you so much again for having this conversation. We appreciate you and all your knowledge and wisdom and the work that you're doing. Of course. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Fans, thank you so, so much for listening. But before you go, I don't want you to miss out on things that I know you need. First, if you need help overcoming nutrition concerns, perhaps something we talked about in this episode, look no further. You have your female athlete specialist in sports dietetics right here. So head to my website, www.riseupnutritionrun.com and book a free call with me to learn more about how I may be able to help you. My flagship program, the Female Athlete System of Transformation, aka the Fast Track, helps female athletes overcome disordered eating and perform at their highest level. The life-changing transformations that we help clients with don't just happen by listening to podcasts. It happens by taking action with people who are guiding you to your goals, aka me. So call me, head to the website, www.riseupnutritionrun.com and book it in. Take action, overcome your nutrition struggles as fast as possible. I am here to help. Second, don't forget about our amazing sponsors, Inside Tracker, insidetracker.com forward slash rise up for 20% off. Also, we are supported by Orgain. If you are an athlete in need of a quick fueling option with clean, good ingredients, look no further than Orgain. I absolutely love their ready-to-drink whey-based shakes for post-workout on the go. As a listener of this podcast, enjoy 30% off your first order with the code RISEUP30. All caps, RISEUP30. Last, if you are a dietitian, coach, or health professional needing a platform to manage your business, coordinate with your clients, invoice, communicate, and more, look no further than practice better. Get a 14-day free trial and 20% off your first four months by clicking the link in the show notes and using the code RISEUP20. I've been using practice better for four years now to manage my business, and I promise it's the best way to manage your practice. Look, ladies, since you are doing all of those things for you, my last request, if you're willing, is to do something for me. Please head over to our ratings and reviews, leave a five-star rating, leave a positive review if you like this podcast, and please tell a friend about this amazing podcast or an episode that you think they need so that you and others around you can be fierce, fit, and fueled. Until next time, fuel fiercely.